Good evening. This is indeed Milton Rosenberg, and I'm very eager to get down to work with our very special guest for the evening. He is James Flynn, uh, for whom the Flynn effect is named. What is the Flynn effect? It has to do with the mystery of human intelligence, and we'll disclose just what it reveals and what the evidential basis for it is in a moment. But uh, by way of a uh, a pro- provocation to further thought, just before we go to the news, one might play with the book of Genesis and change a crucial sentence and say that it is commonly understood that um, smart and stupid created he them. That is, that people vary, maybe even they vary by race or by uh, biologically defined subcategory uh, as to how intelligent they are. James Flynn, of course, doesn't view that to be the truth at all. Furthermore, he has discovered data demonstrating uh, the Flynn effect. I'll give this much away. The Flynn effect is that we are all getting, year by year or decade by decade, smarter in the sense of testing higher and on IQ. Why and how is a kind of a mystery, a mystery which we may dispel in our conversation tonight as we undertake a full examination of the Flynn effect right after the update on this evening's news. And for tonight, uh, that provided by David Schwann. It's Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg from the Allstate Studios in Chicago on 720 WGN. James Flynn, my guest tonight, is one of the most distinguished people in uh, academic life. Not in this country, though we know him very well in this country, but in the world, I would say. He is professor at the University of Otago in New Zealand, though he is an, an American, indeed a Chicagoan. You came, uh, you did all of your uh, college work from bachelor's degree on through Ph.D., in fact, at the University of Chicago, didn't you? Yes, I came in 51, and I went out to teach in 57 and wrote off the rest of my doctoral dissertation and took the doctorate in 58. And everything was at Chicago, both uh, uh, the originally the Hutchins B.A., of course, and mm-hmm. then M.A. and Ph.D. in political science. And you are <coughs> – you didn't become a Straussian, but you studied with Leo Strauss, I gather. Yes. If you read Where Have All the Liberals Gone, I have a section there on Leo Strauss. Uh-huh. Uh, that was a great disappointment for me. I was tortured by the problem of ethical skepticism, which has been my chief research interest throughout my life. And I knew that Strauss rejected it. And he often talked about the evils, but he never gave a solution. And this was very frustrating. You've already demonstrated what is uh, quite interesting about your preparation and about your background. Uh, You are trained in philosophy and in political science. That's right. And you've made a tremendous contribution to contemporary psychology. I would guess that it's the psychologists in the the world and the social psychologists who are most responsive to your work. That's true. It's an irony. I mean, fundamental philosophical problems are the most important to me, and I've gotten a respectful hearing, but if you put all of my other books together, uh, what is intelligence would equal the sales of the other 10 or 11. Sure. <laughs> so that's true. I've reached and the That was the major though. book on the Jensen, uh, or, or, or the Jensen effect, on the Flynn effect uh, published a few years ago. The man Jensen, whom I just blundered into naming, is, of course, one of your opponents, or at least you positioned yourself quite opposite to Jensen, who has been taking the position for many years that essentially there are inherent differences uh, genetically determined and genetically conveyed between different 
sectors of mankind, and he doesn't hesitate to speak of races. And he's particularly interested in the white-black difference. Yes. Uh, when I investigated it, I published a book called Race, IQ, and Jensen back in 1980. And one of the most disheartening things about it was that Jensen at least argued evidentially and seemed to be a, a real scholar of broad education. And the people who argued against him used mainly rhetoric. Mm -hmm. And I thought, this is a disgrace. I'd been in, active in the South as a court chairman, Congress of Racial Equality. And I said, this gives the impression of a group of academics who are afraid he's correct. You speak of uh, Jensen at least having uh, behaved properly by drawing from uh, what you said was evidentiary. That is, they worked from data. The data are essentially the data available through a century of testing intelligence through the IQ test procedure. Many different IQ tests exist. The very first one was, just as the very concept of IQ, was developed by Alfred Binet in France before the end of the 19th century, I believe. It was right about the uh, turn of the century, Into the yes. turn Probably the, the first workable test came yeah. along in about 1904. And it was intended to help sort the wheat from the chaff with regard to young Parisian students to decide who goes to the, on the first track, who goes on the second and third. He was convinced that working-class children of normal intelligence were being overlooked. Yeah. So he tried to develop a test, which I doubt he would have called an intelligence test. And it was very simple things like, could they recognize coins? Now, I think he was aware that even for such fundamental questions, working-class children were at a disadvantage. But they weren't as much at a disadvantage as the middle-class prejudice of their teachers. So I think even Benet didn't think that he had some test that rose above all social circumstance and magically diagnosed intelligence. Now, with regard to the white-black uh, intelligence difference, and one could also compare many other groups. Uh, in fact, you could also compare among uh, the whites, among the Caucasians, Jews and non-Jews, and that has been done. Yep. But as it regards the white-black difference, for uh, in most research, what turns up uh, is about a 15 IQ point discrepancy uh, favoring whites as against blacks. And it leads people like Jensen and various others, including a mutual friend of ours, Charles Murray, who's been on this program a number of times discussing these and related matters. It leads such people as Jensen and Murray to the conclusion that it may be unfortunate and we're not too happy about it, but it looks as if there is a genetic difference uh, between the whites and the blacks. Uh, and that is a problem that you've addressed closely and on which you've got a great deal to say and uh, for which you've mustered evidence which alters the picture quite considerably. We are about to pause and serve capitalism. And as an old socialist, that may not quite suit you, but you understand that's the nature of American commercial radio. But after a brief pause for some commercials, uh, let's go directly to that question in fuller detail. And as you treat it, in this most interesting new book just published, Are We Getting Smarter? Rising IQ in the 21st Century by James R. Flynn. Directly on to that discussion after this. Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg on 720 WGN. And directly back to James Flynn. It was the question of the uh, persisting difference between white and black tested uh, intelligence, which really energized you to look into the data far more closely. Yes. As a moral philosopher, I was writing a book on how to 
argue with anti-humane opponents, and these include racists. And I could immediately see that Jensen wasn't a racist, that is, he wasn't for some mystical reason claiming blacks were inferior. Indeed, he's often said that the most intelligent person in America could be a black male. But he was claiming there was a statistical difference between black and white. And this 15-point IQ gap, he thought that if you equalized environments, only five points would go away. And the other 10 were probably due to genetic differences. This 15-point uh, gap is more or less universal. It's not just on American data. The same thing turns up in any countries where you've got black and white populations. I'd be interested to see a study of the island of Dominica, which is very highly black, and I've never found anything but uh, I have IQ data that they're making gains over time, mm -hmm. but I've never had any data to compare them to the white norm. And, of course, if you go to subtropical Africa where blacks are still in very much tribal situations, you can find greater gaps, <coughs> uh, you know, because they have not encountered modernity at all. But certainly in America, the 15-point thing became a fixed notion. Now, my research, along with my associate uh, Dickens, Dickens and Flynn publish a fair amount, we found that blacks had gained on whites over the last generation, and it would be more accurate to call this 15-point gap today a 10-point gap. So the gap has been narrowed. Yes, that's only in the last generation. We also discovered something I think just as significant, and that is that the black-white gap increases with age. Uh, primitive IQ tests done at Harvard with infants of about nine months show the races as equal. The first good uh, Stanford Binet data and Wechsler data at the age of four shows that blacks are about 95.4 compared to whites, so the gap is still under five points. By the age of 24, it's a 17-point gap, so it increases with age. Now, you can always say it's still genetic. You know, uh, girls are as tall as boys up to a certain age, and then boys forge ahead, and that's clearly a genetic factor. But I think that would be a premature conclusion. I can give you an environmental scenario that would explain why blacks drop behind whites as they age that would be entirely plausible. I will come to that shortly, but the other great fact, and this, is, uh, this leads us to what uh, Charles Murray uh, and Bob Hernstein labeled uh, to be the Flynn effect, because you're the first one to really yep. fully elaborate it, and that other great fact is that maybe blacks are still lower than whites, uh, in this country on measured IQ, but the measured IQ continues to rise for both groups, and that's, indeed for all persons. That's quite true. For example, if you look at David Wechsler's tests, the blacks of 2001 score higher than whites did in 1947-48. Yeah. Now, that doesn't settle the issue. You could always claim that the causal factors that push IQ up over time are not the same causal factors that separate black and white. And it would certainly be a shortcut to identify the two, and I don't do that. I have separate scenarios. It certainly shows that IQ is very malleable. Well, let us first examine the basic Flynn effect and the account of why it is there. Uh, or even, I guess, first one must really ask, can we trust the data, when the data are 
essentially uh, IQ scores based upon such standardized tests as uh, the Wechsler uh, Adult uh, Intelligence Scale. That's um, one of the two. There's also a, a Wechsler Intelligence Scale for children. And the other big uh, test that you commonly, whose data you commonly uh, employ is the Ravens Progressive Matrices That's right. uh, Scale, one that I don't know. The Wechsler I know well. When I was a, uh, a young intern, a psychology intern, unpaid at Kings County Hospital, I used to administer the Wechsler Intelligence Scale. It was then called the Wechsler Bellevue Intelligence That's Scale. Right. Do you want your listeners to know what the Ravens is like? Please. Yes. It's a test... Of analogies, you know, something, I mean, a, a verbal analogy would be dogs are to cats as wolves are, and you'd supposedly say wild cats. But these analogies are conveyed in a matrix design with three columns, and you're supposed to see patterns. Now, a very simple pattern was that if two triangles were followed by a circle, and then you draw two circles with a blank. You would say, well, probably it should be followed by a triangle. But, of course, it can get far more complicated than that. I mean, those would be very simple analogies. And we might say, referring back to the Wechsler, which is still commonly used, though it's been updated and altered yeah. over the years, it has many subscales. Uh, one of them is simply the information scale. Yep. Uh, I don't know whether it's still the case. The first question used to be, who's the president of the United States? I don't think that's true any longer, but you're quite right. It's supposed to be the sort of information an intelligent person would automatically pick up. Exactly. You may ask, what does information have to do with intelligence? But they would say, if you're dealing with people who are in the mainstream of society, you'd have to be pretty obtuse not to know which continent Brazil was on. Then there's a scale which uh, asks you to listen to a series of numbers yep. and then to repeat them backwards. Yes. Well, there's both forward and backward, to and it's sure. a very interesting subtest because forward digit span, that is repeating the numbers in the order in which they were read out, of course, is just rote memory. And there the races are very similar. Backward digit span or reverse digit span, you have to reorder the numbers into reverse order when you repeat them back. And that's obviously a more cognitive, complicated uh, operation, isn't it? Let's give it to our listeners right now. Uh, uh, Read me some numbers. 7329. Okay, 9237. Now, you see, that was in reverse order. Yes. And that would be much more difficult than just repeating them in the same order. Particularly if you now use six or seven digits rather than... Oh, four. yes, of course, of course. And, uh, and you find a greater black-white gap on backward digit mm -hmm. span than on forward digit span. And that convinced Jensen that while black and white were relatively the same for what he called, I think, level one intelligence, or maybe it was level two, and that is mainly rote memory. When you got to more cognitive complex operations, there was a genetic gap between the two. But if, su if such a gap exists with regard to digit reversal, it still is the case, I gather, yep. that over the years, blacks have been doing better and better on digit reversal. Oh, yes. Today, blacks would do as well on reverse digit span as whites were doing 50 yeah. years ago. I mentioned, uh, setting up for this phase in our discussion, that another comparison of two groups, both within the Caucasian uh, category are Jews and non-Jews. Yep. Uh, and my folks do better on the average than 
uh, than your folks. They do indeed, but it's very interesting. I got into this in claims that women couldn't become great mathematicians because they did poorly on spatial visualization mm-hmm. tests. Right. And I discovered this was also true of American Jews. They have a spatial visualization deficit, and yet they're pretty good mathematicians. <laughs> so it can't be as simple as whether well, you have good spatial the, visualization. Maybe German Jews do better at it because, after all, Einstein, more or less the genius of the last yep. century, was essentially engaged in spatial visualization. That's right. It doesn't apply to individuals. It's also interesting that even within the Jewish population, there is a gender gap. The, the group among the four we're talking about that has the worst visual generalization skills are Jewish women. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're below Jewish men, but Jewish men are below non-Jews. And uh, I wrote a whole article recently on the question of gender, but that's in the book. We're left with a great question. Uh, is What do intelligence tests really measure? Does uh, IQ is the concept of binet. As I remember it, it's a simple um, fraction. It's... Uh, Chronological age over uh, mental age. Mental age is defined as uh, as how well you do your do the level at which you perform compared to actual members of that chronological group. I've said that poorly. You you can say it better. Let me. The original meaning of an IQ was intelligence quotient, and the way the quotient was calculated was: let's say that you're eight years old. And let's assume that we give you an IQ test and we give a random sample of your age group an IQ test. And let's assume that rather than doing like the typical 8-year-old, you do like the typical 9-year-old. You then have a so-called mental age of 9. Yes, you have a mental age of 9. And the original notion was you would (laughs) just put 9 over 8. Well, 8 into 9 goes uh, 1.12. So you have an IQ of 112. Now, later on, that became seen as a bit crude when you got towards adult ages because someone who was 16 and had an IQ of 17, of course, didn't come out nearly so well. So the intelligence quotient was replaced by David Wechsler. He said, this is stupid. Why don't we just test each person in relation to their age group and convert it into percentiles? If you're at the 84th percentile, I'm going to say you have, by definition, an IQ of 115. If you're at the 98th percentile, I'm going to give you 130. And you do every age group. And that means that the IQ has the same meaning no matter what age you are. So that was a step forward. If um, the Flynn effect is in operation, uh, is it, what prediction might one make about my intelligence, whatever it is, as compared to that of my uh, my beloved grandson, <coughs> who was uh, <coughs> excuse me, who has just turned fifteen, and whom we all in the family consider extremely intelligent, is it likely, all things equal or on average, that he would have a higher IQ score than I presently have? He probably would, all things being equal. What's the age gap between you and him? Considerable. Uh, 60 years? Thereabouts, I suppose. Yes. Well, 60 years is a fair amount of time. And if you were both typical Mm -hmm. people on the Wechsler tests, there would be a difference between you. Let's see. It's about three points a decade. Six decades is 18 points. If your IQ, let's say, when you were tested at his age, 
was 136, he would be 154. Uh-huh. So he'd be a lot higher, and it would go all the way down the line. If you were perfectly average at his age, and we scored him against the norms that you faced, he would be 118. Now, of course, compared to the, uh, his peers, he wouldn't even be anywhere above average. So the average person today, if scored against people of 60 years ago, has about an 18 IQ point bonus. But all of this becomes relevant and becomes important only if we are convinced that IQ tests measure intelligence, which we are told they do. Uh, some argue that all that uh, IQ really means is that, uh, is that intelligence is what IQ Tests presumed to measure, but we don't know that that's the proper way to define or to get your hands on, in metric terms, the process or the quality of intelligence itself. I raise that difficult question just as we must pause for an update on the news, but we need to look at that a little bit more closely, as we shall in continued conversation with James Flynn after uh, we go to the WGN Newsroom. Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg on 720 WGN. And we turn directly back to James Flynn, uh, who is uh, the man for whom the Flynn effect was named. You didn't name it that way. Our mutual friend Charles Murray did. Yes, he coined the term. Uh, And uh, of the many books that James Flynn has done, the newest just in hand is titled, Are We Getting Smarter? Rising IQ in the 21st Century. That's published by Cambridge University Press. And I can attest that it's written in strong and vivid language, which at the same time is completely... uh, Uh, effective as communication so that you can learn a great deal about the nature of intelligence and about the data suggesting that we are are indeed all getting smarter. But uh, a necessary sidebar is the one that I was – has to be built around the question I was raising earlier. Does – do IQ tests really measure intelligence? There is a man also in this general realm of scientific discourse, Howard Gardner, uh, in education – at uh, Harvard University, who argues there's no such thing as a unitary intelligence. There are some, I forget how many intelligences he identifies, eight or nine. At least eight or nine. He added one. uh, There was the original group, and then one came along later. Whereas a counter view is, I haven't yet even used the term, the G factor, but that is... That argues essentially there's something that is common to all the separate tests that you might use on an intelligence scale. They all evoke, though with different G-factor loadings, but they all evoke a kind of a common quality, which is at the core of intelligence. What is that common quality? I would say that the G-loadings rank these tests in terms of cognitive complexity. We've already seen that digit span forward has very low cognitive complexity. It's mainly mm-hmm. rote memory. Digit span backwards requires an extra mental operation. So it has a much higher G loading. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it holds some surprises. You might think that vocabulary was not heavily G loaded because, after all, you'd say you either know a word or you don't. But we absorb vocabulary by absorbing the abstract ideas behind the words. So in point of fact, someone who accumulates a large vocabulary, there has been considerable cognitive complexity overcome in the process. You're not going to uh, absorb what the word concomitant means without understanding the idea behind it, namely that two things go together. 
and it leaves open whether the connection between the two is causal or just a correlation. Now, you see, in order to pick up that word in my vocabulary, I had to absorb a fairly cognitive, complex idea. Raven's progressive matrices, the one we talked about later, a little while ago, is very highly G-loaded. They can give you some very complex problems to solve with these symbols. I recently refereed a paper, and in it he gave an illustration that you could rank even the items of Raven's for cognitive complexity. And he gave an example of one of the most complex, and it took me a while to solve it, because you had to do an analogy, and in order to get the analogy right and supply the missing symbol, you had to ignore the literal meaning of symbols and to look behind them for the relationships that they partially obscured. So you have um, persuaded yourself that uh, there is a a G base for intelligence, that there is some sort of unifying factor, and it has to do with uh, novel and abstract uh, thinking. Uh, That's what really ultimately is measured by all the different subtests on the Wechsler scale, or for that matter, by uh, the um, Raven's uh, matrices as such. Uh, IQ is real, in other words. Well, look, you don't have to argue about whether it measures intelligence. The evidence is that if you have two children and they come from the same home and you've given them the same education and you've tried to give them the same advantages, whichever of your children scores highest on a G-loaded test is likely to rise above you in socioeconomic status and the other one isn't. So to say it's only measuring something that has significance in the test room is just silly. It's ob- Now, you can quibble. You can say it's not measuring intelligence. It's measuring whether you have been lucky enough to take advantage of the education you've been offered. To which, of course, Jensen would say, well, how much luck is involved in that? We all know that a smart kid picks up more from school (laughs) than a kid who isn't as smart. So attempts to fudge whether the intelligence tests and measuring G are measuring something significant, usually none of them say the test isn't measuring anything significant. They just want to deny the name intelligence to what they're measuring. And we do get a general correlation, don't we, between... Uh, measured IQ and give give or take uh, attainment in life, attainment professionally, Opening doors. I mean, there are very few people doing a PhD at Harvard who have a measured IQ below 130. Unless they're in the uh, School of Education. (laughs) Uh, There are very few people who will have a managerial, technical job of any sort with an IQ below 100. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't unusual individuals who have highly organized personalities and are self-disciplined, who overperform by a great deal. I found in my own research that Asian Americans, uh, those of Korean, Chinese, and Japanese descent, they can match a white for IQ and yet outperformed them for school grades and SAT scores by about seven points. So clearly something is entering in other than measured intelligence. Don't they not only match in IQ, but don't they, like 
the Jews who've been measured over the years uh, compared to other non-Jewish Caucasians. Don't the Asians also, on average, run higher on IQ? Well, that is, in my opinion, a product of the current genera- genera- generation. I wrote a book called Asian America in 1991. <coughs> And I found if you took the group that graduated from high school in 1966, the measured IQ of the East Asians was not above that of whites. But they performed as an occupational status as if they had an IQ of 120. Mm. Now, seven points of that was that they could get the credentials with the same IQ as a white and yet outperform them by seven points. The other 13 points was they never missed a chance. That is, if a Chinese-American kid got entry to Stanford and his fiancée said, you know, stay with me, the Chinese kid got a new (laughs) fiancée. An Irish kid might stay behind and go to the local, you know, Jesuit college. Uh, They didn't – you don't have Chinese kids who qualified for Stanford who decided to go out and eat beeswax and live in a commune. That was a privilege of the white middle class. So about a third of their occupational advantage over whites was that with the same IQ, they could get higher credentials. The other two-thirds was they never missed a chance to make those credentials so, count. And so the diff- that difference is accountable by a difference in the culture, in the background exactly. culture, they as came- transmitted by the parents and others representing, uh, in essence, Chinese life. Comparing Chinese and Irish Americans, for example— Uh, The Irish in Ireland were much poorer than rural Chinese. Mm -hmm. Their farms were one-sixth the size. They were not accustomed to a money economy at all. You had to spade potatoes twice a year, and that's all the farming you did because you had to put your farm in potatoes to survive. The Chinese peasants in the Yellow River Valley, they bred silkworms. They had three crops of rice a year, they were familiar with money, and they had a vibrant educational tradition, and unlike the Irish, they didn't drink too much. (laughs) So when the two groups came to America, the Chinese shot up immediately, and it took the Irish three generations. So the history of a people, take my family, uh, Irish-American family, my father was born in 85. When the boys hit 11 to 13, they were expected to go into factory work to pay off the family mortgage. (coughs) The Chinese might have the kid work in their fish and chip shop, but he stayed in school. So they had a tradition of building up educational capital that Irish just didn't. And, of course, they met up much quicker, much quicker than we did. We're about to pause for another round of commercials. Uh, The basic business we have to get to now is one established that the Flynn effect uh, seems to be uh, visible in the data all over the world, not merely in the United States, not merely in the U.K. or New Zealand. uh, IQ, as measured, is rising the world over to different degrees or with different velocities, but is rising everywhere. Uh, And the basic question that leads you to is why in the world is that happening? We'll address that question after this. Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg on 720 WGN. And back to James Flynn. The moment of truth has arrived. Uh, How are we to account for the Flynn effect? But first, uh, do the data indeed demonstrate the pervasiveness of the Flynn effect every place in the world? Do we find it in Uh, Luxembourg and in Angola as well as 
in the United States? Well, we don't have data from Luxembourg and Angola, but every country for which we do have data, and there are about 30, uh, every one of these in the developed world showed a period of massive IQ gain sometime in the 20th century. Now, interestingly enough, towards the end of the 20th century, Scandinavia tailed off. And many of us thought that by now America and Britain and Germany would have tailed off, but they haven't. One of the surprises I explore in this book is that their gains are chugging right along into the 21st century. If you take an American who was uh, 30 years old in 1930, uh, uh, what would a 30-year-old in the year uh, 2000 have been like. What's the difference or the gap between 21 the two points. 21 points in IQ. Which is huge. It means, again, that if the uh, mm-hmm. average person of that time was tested against our norms, they'd have an IQ of 79. Mm-hmm. And, of course, that is getting down to, well, 70 is the cutting line for mental retardation. Now, obviously, that's mad. Uh, my father, who was born, as I say, in 1885... Uh, if he were tested on Ravens in 1900 at the age of 15, the gains on Ravens have been even higher. And he might well have been ascribed an IQ of 50. (laughs) Well, a person of 50 cannot keep score at baseball. My father taught me to keep score at baseball. So we, between individuals, it's much easier to call differences in IQ intelligence differences than if you look over time. Let me give you an analogy. If you and I were racing car drivers and we raced cars today, we would both have access to modern cars, and it would be a pretty good test of our driving skills. If I had to use a car from 1900, you'd beat me pretty easily. Now, that doesn't show that my driving skills are any different. It shows that I have a different thinking machine. Mm -hmm. And our minds have altered during the 20th century almost as much as our automobiles have done. And if you ask me, are we more intelligent, I'd say that breaks down into four questions. Our brains are no different at conception, but we use them differently throughout life. And you know if you swim, you develop different muscles than a weightlifter. And you do a lot more analytic thinking than my grandfather would have. And he did a lot more rote memory. He knew the names of his third cousins once removed. Uh, But he would have been hopeless attacking Raven's problems that asked him to do logical analysis of the abstract. It's use it or lose it, but it's also use it, and that will also produce some brain, possibly some brain modification. Oh, it does. They did a study of London taxi cab drivers, and they have to have good maps of the city of London. Yeah. And uh, they found that that their hippocampus was enlarged, just as your muscles enlarge if you lift weights. So at autopsy, there would be a difference in the brains of ourselves and our great-grandparents because they've been used differently. Now, you might say you're just talking physiology. What about intelligence in terms of problem-solving, to which my answer would be, In terms of solving the problems of everyday life, they might be even better than we are. The soldiers in World War I showed enormous ingenuity in trench warfare. But if you mean could they attack as wide a range as abstract problems, they couldn't. 
And I think when you realize this, you say, why should I worry about how we use the word intelligence? We know the differences. We exercise our brains differently throughout life. Even though we're born with no different brains, they're different by the end of our lives. And the way in which they're different is not that we can deal any better with the problems of everyday life. The way in which our brains are different is that we can apply logic and classification to the world in a way our parents can't. The trend is upward. Uh, And those two things. And in some other things as well. They're not upward if you look at the binding basic skills test, which shows how well you cope with everyday life. Uh But if the trend is upward... Uh, will it go on forever? I can't see that it could. Uh, one of the reasons... I can't either. Or we wind up with IQs of, of, <laughs> of 1,000 instead of 150. Th- that's why I thought they'd stopped in Scandinavia. I mean, the ultimate cause of IQ gains over time is the Industrial Revolution. To run a society that is industrial, you need different traits of mind than to run a simple <laughs> agricultural society. So your mind changes to adapt to what job roles that society gives you. And I thought, well, look, uh, in Scandinavia, they have about as many managerial and professional jobs as society can stand. I mean, feather bedding can only go so far. Uh, Secondly, they have an excellent educational system. They have an excellent health system. Family size is so low that if it goes any lower, they won't be reproducing themselves. So clearly the petrol that drives IQ gains must be running out. And it has run out in Scandinavia, but not in Germany, Britain, or America. Now, it may be that we're just Why not, not? Our societies are similar in terms of level of technology and That's level right. of education. And, uh, well... It may be we haven't just gone that extra mile the Scandinavians have gone. Mm -hmm. I mean, they virtually abolish poverty. They've virtually abolished illiteracy. They have generous support to solo parents, you see. And it may be that you have to go that extra mile to eliminate the causes of IQ gains. So that could be the solution. I don't know. The developing world, of course, is taking off like a, a spark. Uh, Many of them didn't gain much in the 20th century because they were pre-modern. But in Kenya, gains are explosive. Uh, Higher, say, than they are in this country? uh, No, they're not as high mean IQ, but they're gaining at a much faster rate. That's what I mean. The rate is faster. And uh, I think that Kenya's economic development is running at 5% a year. Turkey is another one. I think that within 40 years, Turkey will be as developed as France and with about the same IQ. What kind of data do we have, if we have any, from China, where industrialization and uh, general modernization has gone at a very fast pace, obviously? Unfortunately, what we have from China is only from urban China. Yeah. So that leaves But that's where you would expect the effect to show. So that leaves out the huge rural areas. And secondly, what we have is... Birth date data. Now, that's not entirely bad. But what the birth date data shows is that you test people at a given time on Ravens, and then you find that those who are 20 outscore those who are 25, outscore those who are 35, outscore those who are 45. And therefore, the data isn't as strong. But you can certainly draw a graph, and that is the later you were born, the better you're doing on Ravens. So I think we can infer that there has been some quite significant gains in China. Now, you talked about G. 
I think the G difference between individuals like your children is very close to an intelligence difference. The fact that we're so much better than our ancestors on G-loaded tests doesn't have that significance. I think it merely shows our brains are more modern. Let me give you some of the examples I give in the book. The great psychologist Luria did tests among Russian peasants. I love those dialogues. Yes, typical of the items on IQ tests. And some of these were headmen of their Mm -hmm. villages. They were obviously not stupid. And he would say to them things like, wherever there is always snow, bears are white. Uh, The North Pole, there is always snow. What color are the bears? And they would say, I've never been there. The only bears I've ever seen are brown. And he would say, but what do my words convey? And they would say, such a thing is not by words, but by testimony. If I met a man from the North Pole and he was of reliable character, I might believe him. This is folk wisdom, I suppose. Well, they're right, of course. You as a scholar know you can't (laughs) settle questions of fact by logic. You do in a way they they uh-huh. had read language, truth, and logic. Uh-huh. They they're in, or you would say to them, uh, Hamburg is a city in Germany. There are no camels in Germany. Are there camels in Hamburg? And they would say again, I've never been to Hamburg. And if you said, but I told you there are no camels in Germany, and they would ruminate and say, well, maybe Hamburg is a village and is too small for camels. That is, they refused to treat the questions hypothetically. For them, they were concrete questions. The way I put it is they had on utilitarian spectacles. Mm -hmm. If you ask them what dogs and rabbits had in common, they would say dogs hunt rabbits. Now, I must tell you, we're about to pause for an update on the news. Uh, You are a Ph.D. from the University of Chicago. That's it. I've produced a few Chicago Ph.D.s. All right. I've had a long career as a professor there and earlier at other significant American institutions of higher learning. I want to voice, when we return, the professor's complaint. The fact is, uh, as the years went on, I found my students getting more and more ignorant or more and more more, uh, uh, unprepared for sort of effective, intelligent uh, – address to the to the challenges that they were having as students and would later have still greater challenges as professionals, I suppose. There's something wrong there in is. this whole picture, and I want to specify it more fully in terms of my experience and then get your interpretation as to what's gone wrong sure. in the American universities or with the American students who supposedly are gaining on their parents in terms of yep. intelligence. We'll be on to that aspect of the situation after we go to the WGN newsroom and David Schwann. It's Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg from the Allstate Studios in Chicago on 720 WGN. And we return to James Flynn. Uh, But before we continue the dialogue, it is time to invite telephone calls. We'll be on to them perhaps in about 10 minutes or so for any questions you want to raise, any thoughts you want to share relevant to the general topic that we've been discussing, namely the worldwide rise in intelligence. Uh, the phone number, of course, is as ever, 312-591-7200, 312-591-7200. I'm just thinking I should, could challenge myself and try to say those digits backwards, <laughs> <laughs> but I won't attempt that right now. 312-591-7200, the lines are open. If you don't mind waiting for a few minutes, you can get your call in right now. And um, I said I wanted to give you the professor's plaintive complaint. It's very simple. I've 
uh, been in universities a long time. I've taught at Yale, at Dartmouth for a strange two years at Ohio State, and then for the longest part of my career at the University of Chicago. And I began to have the impression, using a psychologist vocabulary, that I got a, a JND, a just noticeable difference in student uh, capability, in student knowledge, in student intelligence, though I shouldn't, I suppose, call it intelligence, uh, every five years or so. A JND downward yep. every five years. So that my students, frankly, at the University of Chicago, a great American university, uh, uh, most of them couldn't write. Yep. They wrote in a very awkward way. They misspelled words. They didn't understand syntax, or at least they didn't bother to respect syntax and grammatical structure. Uh, most of them knew virtually nothing in history, including basic American history. Couldn't name uh, the the years in which the Civil War occurred. Uh, couldn't name all sorts of things that you would expect anybody with any sense of civic investment would long since have mastered. Uh, furthermore, uh, in universal history and world history, they were absolutely innocent of any of the facts, let alone the meaning of those facts. When it came to literature, they read virtually nothing. They could barely name. I asked them on one cultural literacy test I used to give to name a novel by Saul Bellow, yep. who was the leading literary figure at the University of Chicago at the time, uh, maybe one kid out of ten. My favorite was one of the items on my little cultural literacy quest uh, test was uh, who composed the opera Tosca? Yep. Uh, and nobody uh, could po po nobody named Puccini, but the one winning response, one student wrote down, Tosca was composed by Toscanini, <laughs> which is a good try. That's Shows right. some intelligence, I suppose. So we're not talking about their intelligence, perhaps, but there's something. The intelligence has not been put to work in in the realms in which an accomplished adult human being or a human being becoming an adult uh, should be competent. What's going on? Well, first, to exonerate the IQ tests, if you go back to that Wechsler test with its 10 subtests, yes. it doesn't show gains in America since 1950 for the vocabularies of young people. Uh -huh. It doesn't show gains for general information. It doesn't show significant gains for arithmetical reasoning. So all of this tallies with what you're saying. The subtests that you find gains for are, again, analytic subtests how to do a three-dimensional jigsaw puzzle, uh, how to put blocks together to get the design of an animal, uh, picture arrangement to tell a story. These are the sort of things that you find gains on. Just because someone's mind has put on scientific spectacles, and by that I mean they're ready to classify the modern world, you know, rather than saying... Uh, Dogs chase rabbits. They say dogs and rabbits are both mammals. That's what you're supposed to say on an IQ test. That's and the similarity section of the Wechsler, right. in fact. Yeah. And big gains on similarities. Joe's gains are huge, as yeah. big as ravens. And, uh, and again, you know that there have been huge ravens gains. But you can put on scientific spectacles and be ready mm -hmm. to classify the world, and you can use logic on abstract or hypothetical problems, and yet you can be totally unread in great literature. And if you're totally unread in great literature, you're probably going to be a historical. I don't know about you, but I skipped grades at grade school, and they tended to be the years where they taught history. But I learned my history through reading great literature. You know, I read War and Peace. Mm -hmm. uh, I read uh, Remarks novels about Germany between the wars. 
so I think you're absolutely right. Well, I does it follow then that uh, kids who show those deficiencies are not really, though they're perhaps more intelligent on average than their parents or grandparents, but they're not really ready for a full, rich, and uh, productive and uh, and uh, satisfying human existence. You've hit on it. I don't want to get sidetracked here, but I'm on a crusade to salvage their souls. And I published a few years ago the Torchlight List as 200 great books you'll enjoy and will teach you history. And I published earlier this year a book called Fate and Philosophy, saying how you have to look inside and be critical of your own values and religious views. And I have coming out a book called How to Improve Your Mind, 20 Keys to the Modern World, saying you too can do a bit of elementary economic analysis and recognize flawed social science. So just because people have put on scientific spectacles and have absorbed the ethos of classifying the world and dealing with abstractions, it doesn't mean that they have any content <clears throat> or any information or any historical awareness that they can put these analytic skills to work on. Let me give you an example. Genevieve published a wonderful article. <clears throat> And he looked at the exams that we gave 14-year-olds about 1910 in Ohio. And it was all on socially valued information. What are the capitals of the 45 states of that time? Today, such exams are, why is the state capital rarely the largest city? So really, they're asking for concepts. They want you to say, well, the rural people hate the urban people and usually put the state capital in some cow town rather than the big city. Uh, so there's no reason to think that we are any better than our ancestors in reading a great novel, that we have any more sophisticated view of how the modern world was historically generated. But is there reason to think that we're worse than our grandparents? They may well regard. be. Uh, but... We will be superior in certain other ways. For example, my father, as an Irishman, fundamentally hated the English. <clears throat> he didn't have much energy left to hate blacks, but he had a bit. And when my brother and I would argue with him and say, well, what would you think if you woke up black? He would say, that's the dumbest thing you've ever said. Who do you know has ever woken up the next morning black? Sounds he like one of Luria's... That's right. Uh, he wasn't uh, willing to take the hypothetical seriously. Right. Today, a racist would realize that you're asking him to be logically consistent about his beliefs. And he would have to say something like, well, if I woke up black, I would be a completely different person than I am today. You know, I'd be dumber. I would be less in control sexually. Uh, but so there, there's some good things that come with it. It's more difficult to believe in an utterly vulgar racial ideology if you're a young person today. That's worth something. Uh, we're about to pause for the usual reasons, but it's also time to seriously invite telephone calls. We'd like to go to the calls directly <coughs> after these coming commercials. So uh, the phone number, 312-591-7200. Any questions you've got about uh, the measurement of intelligence, the nature of intelligence, and the Flynn effect? the rise of intelligence, the increase over the years in just about uh, every place where, in, in fact, every place where intelligence has been properly tested. And the implications of that increase in intelligence somehow also concomitant with a decrease in knowledge, uh, the implications of all of that for how we live and what will happen to us and with us. Um, 
312-591-7200. Get those calls in, please, instantly, and we hope to go to them directly after we pause for these words. Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg on 720 WGN. With James Flynn. We'll go to the phone shortly, and I need more calls. To my friends, I say get those calls in instantly. 312-591-7200. 312-591-7200. But uh, one or two other uh, brief matters. You've got a very interesting uh, set of speculations about people on death row. How does that relate to what we've oh, been talking about? Well, I'm about? flown into the States to testify in capital cases quite frequently. And uh, a while back, the Supreme Court said you couldn't be given the death penalty if you're not mentally competent, obviously. And uh, they also stipulated that this meant getting 70 or below on an IQ test. Well, until my stuff came along, they didn't realize what a hornet's nest they'd bought into. Because if average performance on IQ tests are rising, let's take two identical twins And let's say they're school kids in 1980. And one is given the new version of the Wechsler test, which was normed a few years before. Well, he's competing with a group of contemporaries, and let's say he has an IQ of 68. Now imagine you gave him an outdated test, which was normed way back in the 1940s. Well, what with IQ gains over time, that's not nearly as tough competition. And that guy, even though he's identical to his twin, will have an IQ of about 74, and he'll get executed. So I've been trying to educate judges that they have to discount IQ scores for obsolescence. You have to ask yourself, was this man tested soon after the test was normed? Or are you scoring him against an earlier generation where it's easier to beat the norms? It's like the Olympic high jump. A high jump that would get you into the Olympics 20 years ago won't come near getting you into it today. So I think it's tragic. They're executing people that I think are clearly mentally incompetent. And yet they have ISQ scores that push them normally above, you know, a little above 70. Mm. And uh, this is a great tragedy. Now, we are making inroads. I have a discussion in the book of how we stand in the federal courts, and it's about 50-50. The issue hangs in the balance. And quite a few courts are now saying, this fellow was scored on a test that was normed 30 years before. That inflated his IQ by nine points. He shouldn't be executed. Every prosecution lawyer, of course, is saying nonsense, nonsense, nonsense. IQs are like loaves of bread. They mean what the numbers mean. Well, that, of course, is madness. You wouldn't tell me that uh, a temperature in centigrade would do for Fahrenheit. (laughs) You'd say you have to translate it. And to take an obsolete IQ score and apply it to the present day is just as absurd, just as you would the cost of living. You know, a dollar doesn't go as far today as it Mm -hmm. did 30 years ago. So that's been one of the things that I think I have made an impact on the U.S. judicial system. They're now beginning to say, let's look at this guy. He's never got a driver's license, which means he can't tell left from right. He's never been able to make change. Okay, he's got an IQ score of 74, but it was on an outmoded test. His true IQ would be below 70. 
So that's one of the good things that has come of the Flynn effect mm-hmm. in the concrete objective <coughs> world. <laughs> Let us go to the phones now, 312-591-7200. And I'm going to hope that this uh, is working properly tonight. If not, uh, the folks in the booth will have to take over in bringing the callers on. But uh, our first caller should be Robert. Uh, are you there, sir? Hello, hello. Can you hear me? I can, sir. Please go ahead. Okay. I was under the impression that one's culture had something to do with determining one's so-called intelligence on the, uh, based on, I think I read Margaret Mead in some books said that if you were to cryogenically freeze somebody from 3,000 years ago, and I assume she meant a child, that if you were to bring it back today, he handled today's environment because he was, he had the stuff in the genes then, and uh, he could have caught up with this environment based on that analogy of driving the automobile in 1900 with that with that machine against something going today. It's not that the driver couldn't have competed. It's just that he didn't have the culture or the machine. Uh, he probably had the skills, though, or at least that's what I'm thinking, if this is about the conversation that you're having. Yes, well, I understand completely what you're saying. Uh, I don't say our brains together today are more intelligent. I say they're more modern. You cannot expect a person who lives in a society that hasn't entered modernity to compete with us on IQ tests that are entirely designed to test the modern mind. Uh, Luria's headmen were highly intelligent but they couldn't make headers' tails out of a raven's test. They couldn't see the point of it. Their minds weren't practiced in doing it. So uh, it would be quite wrong, let's say, to take people in rural Kenya and test them on a modern IQ test. Most of them would still have utilitarian minds. If you ask them what do rabbits and dogs have in common, they would still say that dogs hunt rabbits. They wouldn't think to say whether they were both mammals or both animals. And this is what we have to understand. What makes IQ gains interesting is what they tell us about the evolution of society. It's not that they show we're brighter than our ancestors. They show us how different the culture we live in uh, is from theirs, and they point us to things that we would normally overlook. Well, it really has to be understood that we're standing on their shoulders. I mean, that's passed on the what it accrues. We are uh, like every society is a recapitulation of all that has gone down before it. Um, it's uh, it's this it's this culture. I see the young people today doing things that I would never think of doing when I was a child, and it's just a cult uh, a cultural uh, cultural difference. Um, I don't know. I just got into your conversation. I uh, I, I was. I enjoyed it very much. I'm, I'm enjoying it very much. Well, we thank you, sir, for the call. Glad to have heard from you. And uh, right now we pause <coughs> for an update on the news uh, from uh, David Schwann as we go to the WGN newsroom and then directly back to the phones. There's some room available on the board still, 312-591-7200. If you've got anything to say or ask, get in there instantly. We uh, look forward to talking with you, and we'll be back after this update on the news. Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg on 720 WGN. And back to your calls in just a moment. Uh, the number remains 
7200. James Flynn, I must ask you, since you've lived in New Zealand for a long, long time, um, I found this uh, particular bit of wisdom. New Zealanders who emigrate to Australia raise the IQ of both countries. <laughs> well, that's a joke between us and the Aussies, of course. They would deny that. They would say that that's a libel on them. But uh, New Zealanders are probably pretty bright. Yes, uh, I certainly think... When I the New Zealand universities are non-selective, that is, we don't we give pretty much everyone a chance, and uh, then they're weeded out at the first year. You've got what in the New York City system they used to call open admissions. Yeah, it's not quite open, but it's much nearer than let's say the University of Chicago. Yeah, and I would say that my students. Well, I taught at Cornell for a summer, and I would say that the students <laughs> there were sort of with. Everyone cut off below the level of B minus. Mm-hmm. You know, their their bright were no brighter than ours. Uh, but uh, being a non-selective university, you wash out a lot more first-year students. Let's go back to the phones now. Uh, next up is Mary, I believe. Uh, good evening. You're on the air. Hello, Mr. Rosenberg. Yes, ma'am. Um, you know, as far as you were talking about why your students, you have students and they've changed in so many years, every five years and so forth. I've worked in the schools for several years, and I noticed that I think that the textbook, the curriculum, the whole plan that the students have is so different now. It used to be that they were taught diagramming. They knew a part of speech. They knew where the where everything belonged. They learned the parts of speech. They learned where they belonged in the sentences. Um, they're not learning that anymore, and they've taken geography, history, and civics and combined it into social studies, which very often is what does the instructor want to talk about today? Um, do they want to talk about politics, their form of politics? It, they're not learning basics anymore, they're, and as far as reading is concerned... But they're getting a lot of good liberal, getting good liberal indoctrination from the teacher, usually. Exactly, and, and also... They're they're allowed to choose their books very often. They don't they don't study the classics anymore. They study anything. It, it breaks my heart to go into a library sometimes when I look at the books that are out there. They're so shallow, and the the topics are not they're not even healthy. I think we have to agree that uh, secondary education has really been dumbed down, and in, in the well, main. And I think that tends to be true of what you call uh, James tertiary education, namely the college level, yep. where one of the most one of the worst afflictions of all of course, is grade inflation, yep. giving A's and B's routinely and never giving the news to the kid who hasn't performed well that he hasn't performed well. Yes. Well, they, they, don't, they don't perform. Yep. Well, you know, assessments tend to be inflated when those assessed are more powerful than those doing the assessing. At a time when the clergy was in control of churches, it was very hard to get salvation. Once the parishioner got in control of the clergy, it turns out that hell virtually is non-existent. And while we haven't charted it clearly, parents and the kids now really have far more power than the teachers do, and they want all their kids to get good grades. And the students are more and more considered to be paying customers. <coughs> That's rather. right. I mean, if you... I, I- if you spend $30,000 a year sending your kid to university, mm. you look upon the staff as hired hands. Is, 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 is the, the situation essentially the same in, say, New Zealand or Australia? No, because university education is much cheaper. Uh-huh. And there is still the Commonwealth tradition of excellence. Uh, there's been some great inflation, but nothing like in America. I found that when I taught at Cornell... 
that in order to meet the local standards, I had to move up by two marks, meaning what I thought mm-hmm. of as a B-plus was an A. Apart from great inflation, the other thing is the uh, thinning down of the curriculum. Yep. Uh, Thank you, Mr. Rosenberg. That's what I'm talking about. Yes, yes, ma'am. In, in kindergarten, in first grade, second grade, the children aren't. Be, the curriculum is so weak now, and I mean, we have. I, I often think, what do we do to change this? And I think you have to go back, and you have to you have to change the whole curriculum. The curriculum that you have as little children is don't like America. America is bad. Um, it, but everything is just totally different from when we were children. They have so many books for one subject now. And if you use one book but taught that book in the math class, if you used one book but taught that book in history and taught it and the children learned that book, but they have so many money, they have, they have so much money thrown at education, so many books all over the place, but they're not learning anything. <laughs> it's quantity and not quality. <laughs> well, I think we are, the three of us agree, and uh, that is the one, <clears throat> that's the one flaw in this whole otherwise rather optimistic picture about well, the rise look, of intelligence. IQ scores are wonderful symptoms of what's going on in society. And I think the fact that the vocabulary of teenagers and children, and this is their everyday vocabulary, has not substantially risen since 1950. The fact that the Wechsler subtest that tests for arithmetical reasoning shows no growth whatsoever that these are very indicative that despite the efforts we've made in education on those fundamentals, there have been no gains. Now, American adults have gained in vocabulary over that period, but mainly through going out to the world of work, where they are more often doing managerial, professional, and scientific professions that require larger vocabularies. And this tells us something interesting about society. That is, teenage subculture has grown so powerful over the last 50 years that even though the parent has increased their vocabulary, you'd expect the child to pick it up naturally, and they don't. It's as if the teenage subculture has become so resistant to adult influence that you just don't have the natural flow of larger vocabulary from parent to teenage. Are we in this then talking about and broaching upon some significant social pathology? Yes. You know, the word teenager wasn't invented until 1950. Mm -hmm. Uh, When I was a kid, you wanted to become an adult, so you were free. You had money and a car and sexual freedom. Well, today you have all of that at 13 or 15 or 16 when you're still at home. And there's this blessed state of being a teenager that can persist until 30 or 40. But I had not realized that this subculture had managed to become its own speech community. They can understand what their parents say to them. The passive vocabulary is there, but they can't imitate adult speech. Now, the ground is made up. When they go to university, they gain about a quarter of it, though the entering university students can't mimic their instructor's vocabulary. Uh, The other three-quarters of the ground they've lost is made up when they go out in the world of work and have to interact with people of all ranks of society. Well, one hopes that it's made up. We think it is because— I don't think we've got strong evidence that it is. Yes, we have pretty strong evidence because if it wasn't made up, adult vocabulary would be going down. (laughs) That doesn't seem to be happening. And uh, I think, as I say, another wonderful thing that IQ tests show us about culture— is that as women have come into modernity, they have equaled men 
even on those IQ tests that are most strongly indicative of mathematical skills like Raven's. And for a long time, I was a bit buffaloed because there was a lot of data that women were slightly below men at university for IQ. And then I realized that those weren't typical samples. Uh, Girls today in American secondary schools are much better adapted than boys. That is, the nation's report card shows that the average girl's vocabulary is at the 67th percentile of the boys. And her writing skills are at the 75th percentile. So a girl with an IQ of 100 is diligent, writes her essays, turns in her homework on time, and may get to university. A boy needs to be five or ten IQ points above that to qualify. I think that's an old finding. That is, the, uh, uh, in the general rise, that same gap has, I think, persisted for some time. I remember as a psychology student being told, maybe even hearing this from Wexler, when I, uh, the originator of the yeah. Wechsler uh, Adult Intelligence Scale, that you had a bit of a, uh, a lasting difference between women and men uh, uh, in verbal facility, favoring women. That's right, you do. But this overwhelms that. Uh, I teach a psychology class at Otago. Two-thirds of the students are women. Mm-hmm. Two-thirds of the late essays are the boys. Uh, they do not mesh with formal education as well as women do. And therefore, you'll find at university that the IQs of the girls begin at about 105 and the IQs of the boys at about 110. Well, of course the boys are going to have slightly higher IQs at university, but they don't in the population as a whole. The We're population about to pa- as the whole, men and we- women are equal. We're about to pause. I need to stay on schedule for our last commercial break and then right back to the phones. 312-591-7200. A number of people are online waiting, but there are uh, spaces available for one or two more calls. If you are inclined to make that call, do it instantly. We return after. Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg on 720 WGN. And we return to James Flynn. Uh, much more of what we've been talking about tonight uh, can be found together with still other material that we haven't had uh, time to develop in his new book, are we getting smarter, raising, rising IQ in the 21st century? Cambridge University Press, the publishers. And back to the phones. Next up is Anne. Good evening. You're on the air. Good evening. Yes, ma'am. Um, the uh, Lady Mary who called before had mentioned some things I was uh, uh, talking about. I'm a retired teacher. Go back to the 60s when they started changing curriculum and um, made much more important the uh, math and reading as separate items where previous teaching, all the things were included. And it's gotten worse and worse over uh, time. Young people I talk to today, I'm I'm astonished at how little they are learning in class or that is being provided to them. And I'm talking about the public schools in the Chicago area. And it is a big concern, an extreme concern. One question I'd like to ask, going um, back when referring to um, the question, uh, the rabbit and the dog, how they were alike. Yes, ma'am. Go ahead, please. All right. And um, it was suggested that the answer they wanted uh, was animal. Well, I want to know, did it, was the 
question that clear to say it was a one-word answer because I could see a child, uh, or <laughs> older than a child, responding, well, they've got legs, they've got two ears, they've got this, they've got that. I, I don't see that question as just drawing for, uh, from the answer for animal. Yes, well, it may have been, but a person in 1900, as I say, wouldn't think it reasonable that anyone would be asking them to classify. They, You might have a very bright child who would think, look, the teacher last year taught me about mammals and reptiles and uh, maybe rabbits hunting dogs isn't so much what they've got in common, it's what one of them does to the other. And I'll take a chance and say that they're both mammals. But that's a kid who's reasoning in an atypical way for their generation. Today it would be a perfectly normal way to reason. But people in 1900, again, were not used to dwelling on classification. They were utilitarians. Uh, they used logic. But it would be something like all beagles are good for hunting. That's a beagle, therefore it'll be good for hunting. They didn't think to classify and use logic in the way we do today. Uh, I think it's very hard to bridge our minds with theirs. But, you know, it was a very literal time. Uh, the kids today, one of the reasons that they are so uneducated about literature and history is they live in a visual age. Uh, when I came home, there was nothing to do but read. They go immediately on the Internet. They play computer games. They have a... a a visual world, a world of symbols that was just not there in 1900. In 1900, the only visual symbols for people were elementary arithmetic, musical notation if you were middle class and could afford a piano, and cards, playing cards if you weren't religious, and if you're religious, you didn't play cards. I mean, compare that to the virtual reality, to the incredible imagery that kids have today. Now, I think it's had another effect. The media today give you uh, an emotional fix every 10 seconds, a murder, a rape, a car crash. Uh, it has undermined the ability of kids today to have the sort of attention span that they need to read a novel by Dickens. I mean, you don't get any murders and car chases for a lot of pages. You have to set character and plot. And I think that many people are quite unaware of how totally the cognitive worlds that we live in today and that were lived in 50 and 100 years ago differ. You know, we're in a highly visual world. We expect emotional fixes. We tend to live in the present. All of those things were not true in 1900. People lived with family, church, time moved slowly. What you're expected to know was the names of your fifth cousins. Technology is always is not always uh, beneficent. Uh, it's not always a blessing. In many ways, it alters uh, our very nature sooner or later. It does, but it's taken a lot of people out of poverty. We can't forget some of the surely, things that's done. Uh, we go back to the phones. Three one two five nine one seven two zero zero. Aurelia is next. Good evening. Hello? Yes, ma'am. Please go ahead. Right. Um, I'm Ariella. I just wanted to ask you if, um, if we're generations, that, the more recent generations are developing a more, uh, developing their brains in a, in a modern brain, so to speak, 
um, are they losing utilitarian abilities? Could somebody who's born in the last 20 years be a successful potato farmer, for example, or some other utilitarian death? I'm sure you're right. When I was young, I was born in 34, and when I would go up north to see my cousins in rural New York, Virtually every one of them knew how to take an automobile engine apart and put it back together. You know, the, they were very practical. Uh, their way of understanding the world was actually to show how something worked and to be able to assemble that thing. Uh, today, of course, we're very different. People accept all the contrivances of modern life, and they don't feel that they need to understand or to have any part in what goes into them. Mm. So I'm sure that we have sacrificed. On the Vining test, for example, 10-year-olds today are much less capable at making a bed. Uh, they are much less capable at doing certain errands. Now, I'm not saying that we're enfeebled compared to our ancestors, but there is some evidence that you're right that although we're better in academic analysis of the sort that higher education emphasizes, uh, that if most of us were plunged into trench warfare, we might not do nearly as good a job of adapting as soldiers did in World War I. I think we'll go on to the next caller, and that should be, I believe, Bruce uh, on uh, 3-2-5-9-1-7-2-100. Yes, sir, go ahead, please. Good evening, gentlemen. Thank you so much for taking my call, and as usual, very stimulating conversation. As stated earlier, IQs modernize. I'd love to hear you speculate a little about historical figures that one would remember as being classically intelligent, uh, Einstein, Michelangelo, Isaac Newton, etc. How would they fit in this conversation? Jay, that's interesting. You've got a wonderful... Uh a bit someplace in the book about uh, about rather uh, 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 Newton uh, and the young farm boy who's shown Newton uh, working on his optics in a, in a quiet room. Yes, well, some people jump centuries ahead of their time. Yeah, I mean, look at classical Greece. Aristotle formulated the rules of logic, and uh, some people have been comfortable working with abstractions as long as they were literate. I mean, it's very difficult if you're pre-literate. But as long as you're literate, there have always been great minds that have leapt 100, 200 years ahead of their time, and they feel perfectly comfortable uh, with scientific spectacles. They'll classify, they'll analyze, uh, they'll show remarkable gifts. It's the average person whose perspective has changed. Uh, and... Think of how few people, do you know, as late as 1950, only 5% of Americans earned their living through professions. You know, that small a group. Today, about 30% are either managerial, technical, or professional. Let me ask you as we uh, come to the end, because we've only got about two minutes left. Are you all in all optimistic about the future of mankind on the basis of the discovery of the Flynn effect? I'm not sure. I've got to an age where predicting history, uh, I've been too wrong, too wrong too many times in the past. Uh, whether we can put the fact that most of us have been given an education through scientific spectacles to work, I don't know. There are a lot of human passions that make people not want to face the future. 
Uh, I've just done a little book on climate change. I don't even know whether we're capable of meeting that challenge. Uh, I'm quite convinced that by 2050, unless we meet it, all hell is going to break loose. Uh, I don't, for example, what can you say? I've said that I think Turkey will be a society as developed and with as high an IQ as France within 40 years. But against that, I would have to say, not if it has to fight water wars in the Middle East, you know, not if it has to fight wars with Iraq and Syria over who gets the Tigris and Euphrates. <laughs> if, it, if it faces that type of history over the next 40 years, it's not going to show progress. Uh, if patterns of drought become greater and more eccentric throughout the developed world, who knows what will happen to African countries like Kenya that would otherwise progress. So we have to realize that merely because over time we're getting better at looking through scientific spectacles doesn't solve the world's problems. I think you would agree, considering the way our conversation turned in the last hour, that uh, it's a boon to have higher levels of intelligence. But unless that's accompanied as well by a restoration of general cultural literacy, we're in trouble. Uh, If we remain ahistorical, uh, you know, you've heard the old saw that Uh, If you don't know history, you repeat it. And uh, you're quite right. We have to have a population that uh, reads widely, a population that has some sense of history, uh, a population that has some sophistication about international relations. All that's needed. And with that, as we approach the end of the available time, let's just get very clear that the new book by James Flynn, which I'm eager to recommend to all who are listening, is titled, Are We Getting Smarter? Rising IQ in the 21st Century. And it is published by Cambridge University Press. We'll be back again tomorrow at 10 for a full two-hour program, focusing on the way in which uh, uh, something else is changing, not our intelligence, but rather the way we eat and our understanding of the very nature of nutrition and uh, the kinds of comestibles that are now becoming available. That's tomorrow at 10. Until then, we urge you to get to the website whenever you can to uh, download the podcast. This will be up by tomorrow, and all of the classic podcasts are there as well. We'll be with you again then tomorrow night at 10. Until then, thanks to all for listening, and a most cordial good night.